Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on today's episode, we've got three stories for you. The first is on reporter Howard Stutz' experience at the Super Bowl and what it means for Vegas' economy uh, now that the dust has settled from the United States' biggest sporting event. After that, I talk with education reporter Rocio Hernandez about a mobile pre-K program that Clark County has started. And at the end of the episode, we say goodbye to reporter Sean Galanka, who is moving on from the Indy as he moves up to the Pacific Northwest, and we reminisce on some of his best stories at the Nevada Independent. Uh, but before we get into all that, I wanted to remind everyone that we have a new podcast called On the Trail. It is hosted by our reporter Jacob Solis, and it's all about elections and the government. So go make sure to go check that out. It's find it on any podcast feed. It comes out every Thursday around 4 p.m. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Gaming reporter and I guess now a sports reporter too, Howard Stutz has joined me on the podcast today. Howard, you are joining me today because last week you got to go to the Super Bowl. Thanks for having me on, Joey. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting week. There were so many people from all over the country that came in, but not just for the game, but for everything that surrounds it. I mean, they do a the Monday before the Super Bowl, they have this opening night event. They sold 30,000 tickets for like $30 a pop. Fans were actually in the stadium got to see what the stadium was going to look like. And then that was the traditional media night where the players like Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy and Travis Kelsey, and they were all on podiums where and surrounded by media and the mass crowds and the, the fans. So it was a lot of fun. It was, a, it was an interesting event. Yeah, well, it was a really busy week. And, and one of the things that a lot of your stories talked about was uh, the gaming and the tourism around this event, right? Uh, what did that look like? Did we hit the numbers that we wanted to hit or, or did we exceed them? Well, first off, for the tourism, we don't know the exact numbers yet. We probably know that in, the, in a month or so and they can it all up. But just from eyeballing and talking to people, the Super Bowl drew people throughout the week. Now, there was obviously the game itself. There was a huge, that was like, the tickets were the most expensive, they've said, for any Super Bowl. On the resale market, you couldn't find anything for under eight, nine thousand dollars up in the nosebleed section. So it was a, uh, it was crowded. It was packed. It was sixty-one thousand inside Allegiant Stadium for the game. So they drew from all over the place and internationally. And mentioning the media, they, were, they credentialed six thousand media members for the game. It's an all-around extravaganza. And it was what was fascinating about the Super Bowl being in Vegas, talking to a lot of the media folks that have been to many a Super Bowl. This was Super Bowl what fifty-eight. A lot of media have been, they've gone for the last 10, 20 years to these games. Having it in Vegas, they said, was so much better than anywhere else because everything was right there. You had, the stadium was across the freeway from Mandalay Bay, which was the media central for the Super Bowl. The hotels, years ago, they had the Super Bowl in Jacksonville. They had to bring in cruise ships and dock them in Jacksonville to service hotels for everybody coming in for the Super Bowl. Las Vegas has 154,000 hotel rooms right there. The media, the people that have ever involved, the NFL, they were very happy with the Super Bowl. So it's, it's a given that Las Vegas will be on the, on the track. We'll probably get us the, another Super Bowl in probably five years. Mm -hmm. and, and so let's talk specifically about the gaming numbers and, and what those look like. Uh, what was the money that came in, you know, came into the city and wasn't necessarily going directly to the sport itself? But was going to all those auxiliary things, right? The restaurants and gambling and the hotel room rates, stuff like that. The economic impact from the Super Bowl is really going to be up, upwards of $500 million or more 
for Nevada, 186 million was bet on the game. That's the highest ever. Some of the sportsbook operators thought they would get over 200 million bet on the game. I think it was just the attention of having the game here along with the legal sports betting. And we're going to see what other states look like here over the next few months. They, they come out a little different timing. The books actually won money, which was unusual because there was a heavy, heavily amount of money was bet on the Kansas City Chiefs. Mm. And they were the underdogs. They were about a, anywhere from one to two point underdogs, depending on where you were, where you were placing your bet. And most of the my 60, 70% of the money was bet on the Chiefs. It was a great game. And going to overtime, only the second Super Bowl to go to overtime, the halftime show with Usher and, and, and all his friends. It was a very, but there was a lot of attention. It got, it got the highest rated television program ever, according to CBS. Vegas comes off pretty well in this. And like you said, the sports betting, the room, hotel room rates were highest ever yeah. on the strip for, for these. For the, so that's why you're going to see a, a huge economic impact from the, from the game itself. Well, well, Howard, one thing that I want to talk about that I think is pretty interesting, actually, and I don't think I hear a lot of people talking about it, is the online gambling aspect of all of this, right? Uh, talking about FanDuel and DraftKings and BetMGM. Uh, some of those are not actually, you're not actually able to, to use them in Nevada, correct? Well, here's the, here's the way Nevada works. We have online sports betting here, but for, for a company to be licensed to provide online sports betting, one, you have to have a physical race and sports book in Nevada, which is inside a casino. So now you're already licensed there. And that's the only way you can do that. Plus for a customer, if you want to sign up for a mobile app, you have to go physically go into that casino at the sports book and sign up, show your ID, your credit card, and, and away you go. Most other states, they have remote registration. In other words, I could be sitting here in my house. I want to sign on to a sports book. It's the licensed operator. You do it on your phone from your house, put your credit card in, and, and you're on your way. So that's why we do not have DraftKings and FanDuel are not in Nevada because they don't operate in a casino. They don't, own a, they don't own a casino or operate a casino. They're not licensed here. BetMGM is here because of obviously all the sports books at the MGM properties are BetMGM sports books. Say it was Caesars. Okay. Well, Howard, before we wrap up, there's just one more thing that I want to ask, which is just, you know, this is a Super Bowl. What was it like being up in the press box and getting to cover one of the biggest sporting events in the world? I was there. The Raiders gave me a credential one game earlier this year, and I had a seat up in the press box for, for the Nevada Independent. It was mainly, you saw the writers, the media from the Bay Area and Kansas City, along with some of the larger national media were in the main press box. Up at the top of the stand, they created an auxiliary press box. It was actually a wonderful view of looking, okay. you know, way up high, but looking out, at the, looking out at the whole field from above, behind one of the end zones near the scoreboard. The NFL puts all the stats up on their, on a website. So when you're in the press box, anyway, you have your laptop open and you're able to follow all the stats as the game is going on. It's just the experience itself of being in the Super Bowl. I, I got there early, walked around the stadium. It was, you know, was able to talk to fans as they were wandering around. I took some pictures and, and tweeted out some photos. The experience itself, just actually being at the Super Bowl was really, I've been, I've been a journalist for over 40 years, covered college football, covered, and have covered some NFL games when I was in college and a little bit up here in Vegas now. But to be in the Super Bowl, to see it pers in person was fine. The only thing you miss is the commercials. So I had to go back and watch all the commercials afterward. <laughs> exactly. America's second favorite pastime uh, other than the Super Bowl is the Super Bowl commercials. Uh, my, my personal favorite was the, the Christopher Walken uh, BMW commercial. Um, but, but Howard, I just wanted to wrap it up there and just say thank you so much for, for covering this. 
Uh, I'm sure it was a, a pretty interesting and exhilarating experience to, to get to cover the Super Bowl, something that you probably never expected to see uh, in Las Vegas if we asked you uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. If you had asked me about this 40 years ago when I came to town about, hey, well, you'll be at the Super Bowl in, in Las Vegas, you just never, ever, of those of us have been here for this long, we never thought we'd see this, let alone pro sports here. Yeah. And to see it in Vegas was really fascinating and, and, and to see how the city handled this special event. Alrighty, well, I am here and I'm joined by Rocio Hernandez, our education reporter. I almost said environmental reporter. I, I guess you're reporting on the environment of education, aren't you, Rocio? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say so. Yeah. <laughs> and today we're talking about a really fun story that you got to work on, which is a mobile pre-K program in, in Clark County. Tell me a little bit about this. What does mobile pre-K mean even? <laughs> yeah, so it like this story first caught my attention because it's it's on a school bus, which I don't think that you would normally think of for a pre-K. But the the idea of it is that these mobile pre-K classrooms could be put in anywhere um, within the city of Las Vegas. Um, this is being run by the official city of Las Vegas. Um, they've got these four mobile classrooms that they've put into four areas of the city. Um, so for every school year, they determine four locations that they see the most need in for these kinds of edu early education opportunities. So we've got to go see one in the historic west side of Las Vegas and see how it operates. And parents that we talked to seem very happy with the option that they've brought in here. It's free. It's open to anyone within the city of Las Vegas. They do give priority to certain zip codes that do have a shortage of child care options. And other than being mobile, it's just like any other pre-K program that you come to expect. Students are learning through play. They're learning through fun. These are supposed to be the, the years where they learn these foundational skills that will set them up for preschool. Like things that you wouldn't normally think of, like how to hold a, a pencil, how mm -hmm. to draw between the lines, how to get along with others, how to sit still and pay attention to your teacher. So those kind of things that really set you up for success so that when your kindergarten years officially come around, you're all set and prepared to do start doing that learning from the first day. Yeah. And so this is a bus that does it show up to the students' houses and pick them up or or does it just stay in front of the house and they go onto it? How how does that exactly work? Yeah. So the one the one that we went to was just at like a, a parking lot that the city partners with mm -hmm. and students from all over the the city come and their parents drop them off here. So you can expect to see them at like their fixed location so parents know where to go. And they drop the kids off. How many students are, are, are going to these, these mobile classrooms? So it's a half-day pre-K program. So you'll have students coming in in the morning for the morning session, and then you have an afternoon session. They've got 15 kids that they could take up uh, max in each session. So 120 in total for the program. And they've actually got a lot of openings right now, and they're taking first-come, first-served basis. So right now would be a good time for any parent who's looking for a child care option or like the parents that we talked to, they simply just wanted to get their students ahead of mm -hmm. the curve. And so that's the, that's the main reason why they signed up their students, not so much for the child care, but just for setting them up for academic success. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we've, we've heard in the past about, you know, how important is pre-K for students' success in school? Yeah. So like I mentioned, it's taken for granted a little bit. And we even heard the city officials say that a lot of parents right now, the reason why they think that there's um, so many open seats is that the pandemic really diminished parents' trust and sending your kids to school where they could potentially get sick. 
Um, but, you know, the benefits here are that, like I said, they get to be exposed to kids around their age. They get to learn, you know, like what the school setting is like, somewhere less formal than kindergarten. You mentioned too, kind of like the, the childcare aspect. I mean, I mean, what does the childcare situation even look like in Clark County right now? And, and how is this going to be benefiting that? Yeah. So according to this 2023 report by a governor's working group, every Nevada county is considered a child care desert. And about three fourths of children ages zero to five don't have access to licensed child care. So the need is great here. And that's part of the reason why the city wanted to set this up. They started this program around 2018 and they really just have been expanding it to these four areas of the city where they see the most need for this. I know I talked to one city official who said that they believe that every child, regardless of what zip code you live in, deserves to have access to not only child care, but high quality child care, access to this early education. And it's crucial, if more so, you, you would think for these students, if you're already in less of a privileged state, for you to get access to something that's free, that's high quality, that will set you up for success and put you, you know, on the, on the same level as your other peers. Are there any plans to to expand uh, this to, to more than just four buses? The city didn't say that they have plans to expand this right now. I think they're happy at this four. But the advantage to having a mobile program is that if they ever see that, let's say, one area of the city that they were serving improves their access to child care, they can move their classroom to another area for the next year where they do see more need. So I think that's the main reason why the city wanted to set it up as a mobile option. It also probably helps with costs. They don't have to set up in this big building only to leave it years later. They can just get up and go to the next neighborhood for the next year where they do see the need or where they do see the demand for child care access like this. Yeah. And, and then you said you visited one of these, you know, kind of what was it like? You know, like I, I, I imagine all these kids sitting on a bus with like some coloring books and stuff uh, and, and you know, the teacher walking up and down the aisle. What does it look like, actually, when, when the kids go to these buses? Tiny, right? <laughs> I mean, not just because it's in a bus setting, but like they're tiny, cute little chairs. They had a little kitchen playset in a corner. They had some costumes set up. You can see like lots of learning goes on here. We got there pretty early, so we didn't get to see the students actually doing class. But one of the students was there already like practicing yoga. So like I said, it, it goes beyond like a little bit of it's a little bit of learning, a little bit of play and kids respond well to that, you know, learning through play. It looks like every, any other classroom with their little whiteboards set up, with their little reading time set up. I think one of my favorite things that I heard one parent say, he said that ever since his kid has been going to the program, that his kid has been asking for healthy meals and like emphasizing healthy food. And now he doesn't want to eat unhealthy food unless it's healthy. <laughs> very, very cute, classic like three-year-old learning a new thing and then focusing on it. <laughs> well, yeah, this is just such a cute story and uh, it's such an interesting program. And hopefully it's benefiting the community. And, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. And maybe you'll follow the bus around another day when it decides to, to move locations if the childcare situation improves. But Rocio, thank you so much for, for reporting on this story and for telling us about it. Yeah. All right, well, I'm here with uh, soon-to-be former reporter Sean Galanka, a, a bittersweet podcast episode here. Sean, you are you are leaving the indie. You are you are moving on. That's right, Joe. I mean, at, at the time we're recording this, I have moved. I now live in Seattle and not Nevada, where I have lived for I lived there for probably 95% of my life, and that's hard to say goodbye. But I'm I'm leaving. I'm gone. I'm moving on from the indie, but the indie is still going to be there doing great things. So. 
I don't know. We can we can break it down more, Joe. You know how we do these things, but I guess I shouldn't beat around the bush too much. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're you're up in Seattle now. You're you're gone from Nevada. We'll, we'll definitely miss you on the podcast. But I guess I wanted to reflect a little bit on your your career at the end. You know, how did you get your start here, and where how did you find what what interested you in Nevada? It's actually funny because I remember in the middle of my final year of college, I had applied to be a summer intern at the Indy. I think this was in the middle of 2020. I'm sure there were some funding issues at play, but I didn't get it. I I wasn't initially accepted as an intern. And then as I was preparing to graduate college, this was just one of the the many jobs that I applied for. And I I landed an internship basically starting in January 2021 at the Indy. And I never really envisioned myself as a political reporter. I always wanted to go into sports, but we don't really cover sports at the end. I mean, maybe we, we cover more sports than we did when I started at the end. <laughs> That's for sure. But, you know, I, I've just in that time, I've come to really enjoy reporting on politics and government. And I've loved being at an organization that helps people understand the wonkiness of bureaucracy and policy. And it's been great to, to be in a role to be able to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, got my start as an intern reporter here. I became a general assignment reporter and for a little bit more than a year. My title's been politics and data reporter. So I've had a nice, nice progression here at the Indy, but I, I guess I'm I'm ready to move on. I also wanted to ask, what are you going to miss most about Nevada, you know, now that you're living up in uh, the Seattle? It's hard because I, I grew up in, in Nevada. I mean, I was born in Henderson. I, I live, outside of going to college in Boston, I, I've lived in Nevada my whole life. So obviously there's a lot of memories. My family's there. I have friends there the indie. There's a a lot that I'm leaving behind. You know, I think there's something that's just so unique about Nevada. And I mean, as someone who's from Southern Nevada, I I would say Vegas and and Southern Nevada, especially because it's just this kind of weird ode to like capitalism and excess in the middle of this (laughs) arid blank desert where probably there should be no civilization. And yet somehow the movers and shakers of Las Vegas have made it happen. And and it somehow it has continued to thrive despite the resource and and water limitations. And so I think it's just puzzling, you know, sort of existence. And I I think that that breeds a really interesting sort of set of people that live in, in Southern Nevada. And that move there too, you know, a lot of people that aren't really from there originally are there now. Yeah, well, Sean, we're we're gonna miss a lot of your reporting. It doesn't mean that we're going to be without data reporting and politics reporting. We still have a very robust team that you've gotten to work with. I guess just to to to, to sign us out here before you leave, is is there any stories that you wanted to point audiences to that you're you're really proud of that you want them to make sure that they've they've read? Oh gosh, so many, Joey, <laughs> so <laughs> so many. I would say perhaps my my crowning achievement was a story titled "How Rural Nevada." became the next battleground for the big lie. I think I'm mixing up the headline right now, but I, I'm certain if you if you search up those terms, we'll link it in the buy in the in the description. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I won an election reporting award for that story. It was something that I spent weeks, uh, months of my life on just pouring over public records and interviewing kind of key players involved. And it's a story that I think as a journalist and just as a person, I'm, I'm really passionate about just living in the era of the big lie and post 2020 election, it's just had a tremendous impact on the country and on Nevada. And so, you know, I thought it was a really important story to tell. And I'm, I'm glad I got to help tell it. 
All right, Sean. Well, I think we'll leave it there. You will be missed. Hopefully, maybe we'll have you back on the podcast as a guest in uh, years years to come. You can tell us about how Seattleites view, view people that live in Nevada and Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I'll um, have to start, you know, uh, polling responses and uh, get getting a sense of what that's like. Um, yeah. But thank you, Joey. It's, it's always a pleasure to be on here. And I, I really appreciate your hosting and what you do with Indie Matters. I mean, this is the the Nevada podcast. It's the place to be. All right. Well, Sean, you're you're the reporter to to read here in, in Nevada. We will miss you much. I'm sure we will see your byline, if not on the pages of the Indies, somewhere nationally, New York Times or God Emperor of the United States or, or whatever else you go on to become in your successful career in media and, and beyond. So we're going to miss you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. And hopefully we'll, we'll hear more from you in the future. So thanks, Sean. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I want to thank Howard Stutz, Rocio Hernandez, and Sean Galanca for being on the episode today. And remember to go check out our new show, On the Trail, which airs every Thursday. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from my editor, Michelle Rendells. The music in today's episode came from Emily Pratt, Storyblocks, June Pearson, and myself. And I want to thank you for listening to Indie Matters this week, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.